Welcome to Chalk and Talk, a podcast about education and math. I'm Anna Stocky, a math professor and your host. Provide the support that students need to succeed. Don't just replace the real math courses with fake math courses and then call it a success. Welcome to episode 11 of Chalk and Talk. That was Berkeley professor Dr. Jelani Nelson talking about two of the most popular high school data science courses in California. This is the first of a two-part series featuring Dr. Nelson focused on recent events in math education in California. Dr. Nelson and other STEM leaders have publicly raised concerns about the proposed California math framework. I've been paying close attention to the debates in California, and I was thrilled when Jelani agreed to come on the podcast. In this episode, much of the discussion surrounds the CMF's promotion of data science. In the follow-up episode, we shift our attention to the debates surrounding accelerated math classes. We discuss what sort of math is needed for a data science degree, the crucial role of Algebra 2 in preparing students for careers in STEM, including data science. We talk about the circumstances surrounding the emergence of two high school data science courses that have been marketed as substitutes for Algebra 2, despite containing minimal math content. I also asked Jelani to address the claim that the CMF is equity-based. We wrap up the episode by discussing what happened when he retweeted a post about a prominent math educator charging a school district $5,000 an hour in consulting fees. For better or worse, California tends to lead the way when it comes to changes in education. So wherever you are, in California, elsewhere in the U.S., Canada, Australia, or other parts of the world, this episode is an important listen. Now, without further ado, let's get started. I'm really excited to have Dr. Jelani Nelson joining me today. He is joining me from Berkeley, California. He is a professor in the Department of Electrical Engineering and Computer Science at UC Berkeley. He's also a research scientist for Google. He was previously a professor at Harvard, and he has a PhD in computer science from MIT. He's won many awards, but one example is the Presidential Early Career Award for Scientists and Engineers, which is the highest honor awarded by the U.S. government for outstanding early career scientists and engineers. And as if this weren't enough, he's also a social entrepreneur. In 2023, he was awarded the prestigious ACM Eugene L. Lawler Award for founding Adis Coder, a nonprofit computer science program for high school students in Ethiopia. As well, he co-founded Jam Coders, which is a summer coding camp in Jamaica, and he co-founded the David Harold Blackwell Summer Research Institute to increase the number of African-American students receiving PhDs in the mathematical sciences. He has publicly expressed concerns about the proposed California math framework, which we will refer to as the CMS. And he has co-authored an open letter criticizing the framework that's been signed by over 1,700 STEM professionals. I've been hearing a lot about the CMF in the media, and I'm really interested in learning more about that today. So I was really excited when he accepted my invitation to come on the podcast. Welcome, Jelani. Welcome to my podcast. Uh, thanks for having me. So before we get into it, would you mind telling us a little bit about your background 
I read that you actually taught yourself to code when you were a kid. How did you get interested in computer science? Uh, let's see. So I grew up in St. Thomas in the U.S. Virgin Islands. For those who don't know, it's right next to Puerto Rico, a very tiny island, about less than 50,000 population. I was really into video games. For my fourth birthday, I got a Nintendo Entertainment System, and I played games basically from then on, even until college. And at some point, maybe at the age of around 10 or 11, I started playing online games, right? So I had an internet connection in my, in my house. Spending time online at some point, I realized there was this thing called HTML, which you can use to design web pages. So I remember at some point I right-clicked on a web page. I pressed view source. I clicked view source and it showed me the, the HTML that was used to create the page. And that got me interested in HTML. And you know, I bought a book on HTML and, and read it and started making websites just as practice. I remember one time I made I made a web page for my sister with a bunch of Rugrats stuff on it because she was really into Rugrats on Nickelodeon. I think I learned HTML maybe when I was in maybe sixth, seventh, maybe seventh grade or so. I was eleven. Later on in high school, I realized that you can't write programs with HTML. You need to like learn a programming language. So I bought books on C and C plus plus. By the way, my local island, you know, St. Thomas, back then I think only had one bookstore. It was Dockside Bookshop in Haven Site, and they didn't sell these kinds of you know computer science books. So I would have to wait until we, we had a family vacation somewhere in the mainland U.S. And then I would go to a bookstore and, and buy these books and bring it back to the Virgin Islands with me. So I did that for my HTML book. And then later when I was, I think, 16, I brought home books on C and C++. And I just read them. I gave myself programming exercises. And uh, that was like my, my first introduction to programming. And also at the same time, my 12th grade computer science teacher, Mr. Joseph, decided to teach us some basic that's another programming language so so you know I, I got some exposure to c c plus plus and basic before i started in college that's a really great story let's get into it and let's start talking about what's going on in california so first of all can you explain what is the cmf and what are the state standards sure and let me just preface by saying I'm a, I'm a theoretical computer scientist, so you know my research area has nothing to do with education. So I just kind of fell into this. So I you know it's I'm going to explain the answer to your question, but you know this is not my area of expertise. I just found out about this from other concerned scientists in my research community, and that got me reading more and more and learning more about how this stuff all works. But to answer your question, the state standards for math in California. It, they're called the California Common Core State Standards for Math. The final version we have now, I believe, was adopted in 2013. They say what students are expected to learn in each grade up till eighth grade. And once you get to high school, instead of having a chapter for each grade level, they have a chapter for each course. There's an Algebra 1 chapter, there's a Geometry chapter for high school, but then for K through 8, there's like a first grade chapter, a second grade chapter, et cetera. So it's like bullet, bullet, bullet. A kid in third grade should learn, you know, I'm making this up, but like they should learn that 10 to the nth power where n is an integer is a one followed by n zeros, you know, that kind of thing. The CMF is not a set of standards that say what kids should learn. In fact, the CMF is not here to replace the standards, okay? What the CMF is supposed to do is to provide guidance on how to help students achieve, you know, how to, how to acquire the knowledge required by the standards. 
So it's guidance directed at teachers and directed at school districts of you know how to teach effectively and design curricula effectively that accomplish the goals of the standards. So they're supposed to work together. The standards and the CMF are supposed to work together. Okay, that makes sense. And my understanding is that the proposed changes are to the CMF, not the state standards. Is that correct? That's right. The state standards are supposed to stay the way that they are. They were. They are from 2013. All that's changing is the guidelines that's been given to teachers and school districts, et cetera, which is the CMF. When was the first draft of the proposed new CMF released and what stage are we at now? I believe that the writing process of the CMF started at some point in 2020. And then the first draft was released in January 2021. I I didn't know about it back then. I didn't know what the CMF was that early. There was a 60-day public comment period. There was some pushback also after that, including an open letter I co-authored that you referenced. That was in late 2021, like November, late November, early December. Then a second draft of the CMF was released in mid-March 2022, followed by another 60-day public comment period. Then, you know, according to the State Board of Education schedule, you know, there had been a plan to vote on approval of the CMF in July 2022. But there was so much pushback, there were, I think, something like 900 plus submissions of public comment for version two that the California Department of Education recommended against a vote at that time and postponed to allow them to process all these public comments and you know, possibly incorporate them into a new revision. And uh, just this past Monday, so that's June 26th, almost a full year later, version three came out. And uh, version three is 1,006 pages. It was just released this past Monday. Public comment is due next week, Friday, July 7th at noon. So now there's only 11 days for public comment. And it's, it's not a great time either because uh, our U.S. Independence Day is Tuesday, July 4th. So there are a lot of people vacationing on holiday. And then there's a scheduled vote on this new CMF version at the next meeting of the State Board of Education, which is July 12th and 13th. Okay, so really short timeline there. And you've got the long weekend. I understand that there are some critics, as you referred to, and a lot of STEM leaders have criticized the CMF. So they've raised some serious issues with the proposal. And one concerns the removal of accelerated classes. And the other, as I understand it, concerns the introduction of a new data science stream. So let's start by talking about the data science debate. Before we talk about that, we probably have a lot of people listening who don't really know what data science is. And we hear that term all over the place right now. So can you briefly explain for a general audience, what is data science? Um, Yeah, sure. And by the way, let me just say, you you use the word stream, you said a new data science stream. So um, just before I answer that, your question, they did originally in the first two versions of the CMF propose a new, a third new pathway they called MIC, Mathematics Investigating and Connecting which was really focused, it seemed, on data science. They've actually since removed that in version three, which just came out this past Monday. I'm still reading it, by the way. I'm not done reading reading it yet. It seems they still, even though they've removed this MIC pathway, they still talk quite a lot about data science and integrating it throughout other courses. 
but we'll get to that later. Okay, so what is data science? There are two concepts that I'll mention, data science and data literacy, I would say. So data literacy, I think of data literacy as being like statistical literacy. And roughly what that means is you're statistically literate if you, know, you can watch the news and see a poll result and understand what it means. Okay, so it's, it's less mathematical as opposed to data science, which is much more mathematical. Okay, and the CMF itself cites two references for what data science means. One says it's the science of learning from data, and the other is, says it's the processes and systems that enable the extraction of knowledge or insights from data in various forms, either structured or unstructured. So, you know, it's a blend of statistics, mathematics, and computer science, and using knowledge from these three different fields to extract knowledge from data. I'll also say that even though I think there's a lot of data science hype now, and there has been for the last several years, there are many statisticians who say that, you know, we've been talking about data science in various forms and statistics for almost half a century. For example, there's this article by a statistics professor at Stanford named David Donahoe. His article is entitled 50 Years of Data Science. He published it eight years ago. He was saying that Basically, data science, that term wasn't used back then, but John Tukey was already essentially talking about data science 50 years ago as you know, the application of statistics to learning from data and using tools for math. And, uh, but now that the name has been coined and uh, people talk about it more. There are a lot of jobs for data scientists, it would seem. Is that correct? I do have this part-time uh, job at Google where I work a day a week, as you mentioned. I'm mostly in, you know, living in academia, but, you know, just looking at, looking at things that I've seen in, you know, public record, we have the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, which says that, to quote them, employment of data scientists is projected to grow 36% from 2021 to 2031. They say much faster than the average for all, for all occupations. And also it pays well. They listed the median wage of a data scientist as, you know, six figures over $100,000 a year. So yes, it's, it's a growing field. There are a lot of jobs and it pays well. And you mentioned data literacy. And of course, that is important, right? We want people to be data literate, but that's not the same as data science, which involves a lot of math. So what sort of math does a student need to learn to get a data science degree? Yeah, so I mean, I, I can speak more about, let's say, the California universities. That's what I know about. So what does it take to get the degree? I mean, at the UC, every UC requires calculus to get a data science. The ones that have data science majors require calculus. All but one actually require multivariable calculus. You know, you do also use in data science, linear algebra, of course, probability and statistics. And by the way, let me just say one more thing related to um, what you said about data literacy just now. I should mention, you mentioned that I was a faculty member at Harvard. I was there for six years, and while I was there, Harvard rolled out a new requirement that all Harvard undergraduates had to satisfy. They called it quantitative reasoning with data. It was basically a data literacy requirement. And I was actually on the university-wide committee that was related to the rollout of these courses. Basically, my, the committee I was on had to look at courses across the university, across all departments, and make decisions as to which courses should count for the QRD requirement. And the idea was that QRD was not a replacement for math. In fact, there were QRD courses offered in sociology, offered in the government department, of course offered in math and statistics and computer science as well. But the idea was that 
data literacy is something that can be taught in many contexts. It's not something that should be in competition with mathematics. I just want to note that. What sort of math does a student need to learn to get a data science degree? We kind of touched on that. And you said multivariable calculus. That would be three terms of university calculus courses, correct? I think it really depends on, really depends on the university. I don't know. At your university, do you have a quarter system or a semester system? We have a semester system. For example, when I was in college, my, my first course was called single variable calculus. My second course was called multivariable calculus. But you're right. There are some universities where it's a three-course sequence. And then, of course, here, here, not every university is on the semester system. So Berkeley is. But UCLA, for example, is on the quarter system. So they have like three sessions per year and not, not two like me. Just to be clear, and, and I, I do want to say this because you're at Berkeley, which is a, a very prestigious university. And people might think, well, okay, that's Berkeley. And you know they have these really strict requirements to get a data science degree. Well, I'm in Canada at a primarily undergraduate university. We have a data science stream and our students in the data science stream, they have to take calculus. And so do the students getting statistics degrees. So I just want to put that out there. We often hear criticisms like the content of algebra and geometry was decided in 1892 to prepare students for calculus and that calculus is obsolete due to advances in technology and new job opportunities in data science. But what do you think about that claim? First of all, it's not even true. 1892, calculus was not part of the high school curriculum. I think calculus entered the high school curriculum in the United States in, 19, in the 1950s. I've heard claims similar to what you're saying, like calculus is a leftover relic from the Sputnik era, era you know, the space race with uh, the Soviet Union. And, you know, I think it's just not true. Calculus is not obsolete. You know, if you look at where all the buzz is these days, la large language models, chat GPT, I mean, chat GPT uses modern machine learning and modern machine learning is grounded in multivariable calculus, gradient descent. You don't know, you know, gradients are taught in multivariable calculus. I don't think calculus is anywhere near being obsolete. I think it's, you know, it's finding new uses all the time. So say that um, we want to prepare a student for calculus or to take upper level mathematics. And we're going to be talking about a high school course called Algebra 2 that you have in California. And the topics covered in that course are absolutely essential to be prepared for calculus. Yes, that's right. What about a high school course in data science, though? Would, would that be sufficient to prepare a student to study a STEM field? So I'll say a couple of things here. One is, you know, one, one big problem here is that there are no standards for what, a high, what high school data science even means. So if you look at the California Common Core State Standards, there's a chapter called Algebra 1, and it tells you what a student's supposed to learn in that course. There's a chapter called Geometry, et cetera. There is a chapter called AP Probability and Statistics, which defines uh, standards for that, but there's, there, are, there are no standards for data science. So I, I, I feel like part of this debate is even ill-formed because when people say, well, why, you know, why don't you support high school data science, my question is, what does that even mean? What is a high school data science course? And if you look at the courses that have actually been developed, there are many courses that have data science in their name now, high school courses, that have very different learning goals. I could see a class called data science that does cover the content of Algebra 2. In fact, 
there was a blog post recently from this organization called Bootstrap World, where they were saying that you know they're trying to develop a new course that uses data science examples to teach the content from Algebra 2. I think that course is not in conflict with Algebra 2. But when I look at the courses that have been developed, they are definitely not teaching the content of Algebra 2. And there's a big problem too, which is you know if you get off that pathway and then try to come back, where are you going to get the content that you missed from Algebra 2? At Berkeley, for example, we don't even offer such a course. So there have been some data science courses developed for high schools in California, though, right? There have. And by the way, let me just add to my answer. I mostly just told you about my opinion. It goes beyond my opinion. There was actually an open letter called Data Science in the High School Math Curriculum that says, let me quote the letter, we write to emphasize that for students to be prepared for STEM and other quantitative majors in four-year colleges, including data science, including a data science major, Learning the Algebra 2 curriculum in high school is essential. This cannot be replaced with a high school statistics or data science course. Okay, and this, this was actually co-authored by Barna Saha, who's the lead of a data science institute at UC San Diego. Moses Charikar is a computer scientist who works a lot on parts of computer science that are related to data science. Grace O'Connell is our Associate Dean for DEI, Diversity, Equity, Inclusion in the Berkeley College of Engineering. And if you look at the signatories, it's a lot of leaders, not just in STEM, but leaders in data science, including the Dean of Data Science at Berkeley. Wow. That speaks volumes, doesn't it? You actually pointed me to a couple of the data science courses that have been developed for high schools in California. I looked at one from the U-Cubed website. I mean, my opinion is it's more of what you were talking about, data literacy, but definitely that does not cover Algebra 2 or use anything from the content of Algebra 2, really. Would you agree? Definitely. I mean, so the two most popular high school data science courses in California right now are called IDS. That stands for Introduction to Data Science. The lead on that, developing that curriculum, was someone named Robert Gould, who's a statistics lecturer at UCLA. And then the other course is the one you mentioned, the U-Cubed course, Explorations in Data Science is the name of it. And the faculty lead of U-Cubed is uh, Joe Bowler at Stanford. There are other courses as well, which are just not as popular, but exist. So for example, there's Bootstrap Algebra. There's an organization called Course Kata, which makes data science curricula. About you know these courses and how they relate to Algebra 2, I'll quote Dr. Gould on his course, IDS. You know He says that his course, quote, contains just a dash of mathematical thinking. I think even in his own view, it's not really a math course. And if you look at the course materials, the only prereq is Algebra 1. Algebra 2 is not a prereq for the course. You know, Algebra 2, you learn about things like some various uh, trigonometric identities. You learn you know, logarithms, exponentials, other more advanced reasoning about functions. You just do a like, Control-F search through his curriculum you know, the word logarithm never appears once, exponential never appears once, cosine never appears once, which is strange to me even for a data science course, because shouldn't a data scientist understand, you know, exponential growth, log scale plots? They're definitely not math courses. They're very math light, I'll say. There's some math in it, but it's definitely not a replacement for Algebra 2. And that's the whole point. We're talking about it being promoted as a a replacement for Algebra 2. So that's why we're discussing the two courses against each other. So let's discuss the role of the universities in all of this. So I understand 
that the University of California system, which covers all the UC universities like Berkeley and UCSD, et cetera, has uniform high school requirements for admission for each of the subject areas. And for the math requirements, that's referred to as area C. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, that's right. And, and Cal State Cal State also uses our requirements. So whatever the UC sets as its admission requirements is used at every public university in the state. And my understanding is that in August 2021, UC announced a change to the Area C requirements. So what was that change? Yeah, so there was a statement that was put out by a faculty committee called BORS, and I can say more on what, you know, what BORS is, that defined something called advanced mathematics. You know, it said that if a course satisfies a certain set of five bullets, then it satisfies the requirements for advanced mathematics, and students can take that instead of algebra two. And then they gave examples, and one of the examples they listed was introduction to data science. And they invited high schools from across the state to basically start rolling out these courses. So just the way it works is, you know, there's the policy for admission requirements to the UC. Uh, the, the policy is set by the faculty of the UC. Okay, there's a process to do that. To, to change requirements. And then once the policy is set, there is a staff office at the UC that then is the interface with the actual high schools. So if I'm a high school and I want to teach some courses and I want to have the UC count those courses, I need to submit the course to the UC, basically submit the syllabus and there's a form I need to fill out. And that staff office will review my submission and then, you know, either approve or not and say, yes, this, this does count as a geometry course. No, this does not count as an algebra two course, et cetera. So every high school in the state has to do this. And it's not just math. You know, you said area C is math. We have A through G. So there's English, there's math, there's science, there's foreign language, there are electives, et cetera. Okay. So for every course, for every such requirement, high schools have to submit these things. And basically what Boers was saying was, here are the five bullets that we're putting out as guidelines, as the new requirements, or the new guidelines. And we invite you, we invite you to start submitting courses beyond the traditional courses that satisfy the five bullets. And they gave, as an example, data science. Okay. So there was this committee at the university level called Boers. And that stands for Board of Admissions and Relations with Schools. That's right. And they, see, they oversee the changes to things like Area C requirements. And they made this change, which basically would allow students to substitute courses like data science for Algebra 2. That's right. What was the impact after that happened? How did that change things in high schools? So Boris put out this statement in August 2021. And then the staff office that actually does these approvals, they put together a presentation maybe three to four weeks later, aimed at all the guidance counselors at high schools across the state, basically explaining the change and um, encouraging high schools to start submitting uh, such curricula for approval. And uh, many did. From what I understand, I've been told that you know, as of the beginning of this year, at least 10% of high schools in the state have started teaching at least one data science class. That's the beginning of this year. You know, the time period when schools submit for approval is, is in the spring. Since then, there's been another round of high schools submitting courses for approval. 
So I imagine starting next year, we're going to have even more high schools teaching these data science courses. My understanding is that Bohr's, they were advised by a committee that consisted of representatives from math and stats faculty, yet there's this petition or this open letter where people are kind of upset about the data science courses being promoted in place of Algebra 2 courses. So why would that subcommittee make that recommendation? Let me give, give a timeline, okay? And let me also try to describe how the timeline fits in with the CMF timeline. So remember, the CMF was being written in 2020, the first draft. This committee that you're talking about that advised Bohr's was also meeting in 2020 at the same time that the first draft of the CMF was being written. So this is like way before all the pushback. The open letters you're talking about came later. So my open letter came at the end of 2021. Then there was another open letter signed by almost 450 California faculty, including you know the data science leadership. I think that came out in sp spring 2022. But all, this, all, all these changes at the UC happened in 2020. I'm just sort of surprised that there was a subcommittee consisting of math faculty and statistics faculty that recommended that to Bohr's. There's some nuance here. So let me, let me say a little bit more about the Bohr's statement. So I said that it had five bullets defining a course as satisfying advanced mathematics. So, so let me actually just say what those five bullets are. Okay, so the first bullet was that the course should use mathematical concepts from prerequisite courses, building upon you know, the Algebra 1, Geometry, Algebra 2. The second bullet was that it substantially aligns with Common Core Plus standards for higher math. The third bullet is that it's the course should be designed for 11th and or 12th grade levels. The fourth bullet is that the course should consist of pure math or incorporate math in an applied form. And then the fifth bullet talks about mathematical depth and the course incorporating mathematical depth. There is at least one issue, which is after they state these five bullets, they then go on to describe example core sequences that students can use to satisfy the requirements. You know, one of them is, for example, in the, in the sequence to, instead of taking Algebra 2, take Introduction to Data Science. The truth is that, you know, like the course like IDS, like Dr. Gould's course, doesn't even satisfy, it doesn't actually satisfy these bullets, even though it's been approved as satisfying these bullets. It doesn't actually satisfy these bullets, okay? So for example, you know, Dr. Gould himself has said that his course is designed for ninth and 10th graders, but the bullet clearly says it has to be designed for 11th and 12th graders. And the course materials even say the only prereq is Algebra 1. You know, how could it be designed for 11th and 12th graders? Another one is, you know, containing mathematical depth, but the, again, the course creator said that it contains just a dash of mathematical thinking, so clearly the course doesn't have mathematical depth. I would say, you know, that maybe the real issue is that the courses that have been getting, like these data science courses that have been getting approved under this policy, don't actually satisfy the policy. So they don't actually satisfy the policy that Bohr's came up with. Right. Even though, even though the Bohr statement suggests introduction to data science as a way to satisfy these requirements. You know, it seems that Bohr's may not have even realized that, that like IDS doesn't satisfy the policy. But what about the people on the, the lower committee that made the recommendation? 
Would they have thought that IDS would satisfy the requirements? Uh, there's an interesting bit there. Um, you know, usually these things have one rep from from each UC campus. The UCLA rep on the committee was actually Dr. Gould himself, the creator of IDS. You should have known what he has said about his own course. Yeah, it's kind of surprising that that he, you know, put together this policy that now his course is approved as satisfying, even though he knew that his course didn't actually satisfy the policy, according to, you know, his own language. And I'll add one other thing, which is that there's an interesting quote of his. I mentioned that the two most popular high school data science courses in California right now are his course and also the U-Cubed Explorations in Data Science, which is headed by Joe Bowler. He himself is actually listed as a, an academic advisor for the U-Cubed course. So he has his own course and he's an advisor on Bowler's course. And someone did a, what's called a Public Records Act request. Basically, they were you know able to legally request all the emails between Dr. Gould and Professor Bowler and they got these emails and they just put them on the web for everyone to see. And I, I took a look at these and there, there's an interesting quote of his, of Gould's talking to Dr. to Professor Bowler, where he says, quote, there was a real possibility that IDS, remember IDS is his course, and other stats courses would be stripped of their ability to validate Algebra 2, meaning that they could be used to substitute for Algebra 2. As a consequence, these courses would be relegated to non-college pathways. And then he goes on to say, you know, so him and this new committee that you're talking about drafted a new policy. So you know, his course actually had already been approved to validate Algebra 2 prior, but it seems he was worried that that approval would be stripped away. So he co-authored this new policy, that the, the new policy with the five bullets I just told you, to ensure that his course would stay approved. But it's it's a strange comment because his course doesn't actually satisfy the five bullets, which he, which he himself has said on other occasions. So I don't really know what's going on there. Okay, if I'm understanding this correctly, he was actually on the committee that made this recommendation to Boers. And he also has a course that he created, IDS, that he wanted to be approved to validate Algebra 2. Yeah, I mean, it was already approved before before he started on this, this ad hoc committee. It was already approved, but, you know, what he said, I'm just reading his words, that there was a real possibility that this approval would be stripped, you know? So I guess he was worried that he would lose the approval. I'm not sure what triggered that worry, you know, so he served on this committee to draft a new policy. And then after the new board statement came out, you know, the next month when there was this presentation to high schools to invite them to start rolling out data science courses, his course was mentioned by name in that presentation as a model such, you know, data science course, you know, even though it doesn't actually satisfy the requirements of the policy. I can't imagine that they realized that it, it didn't satisfy the, the bullets of the, the requirements of the policy. But, you know, that's that's what happened. And so this just went through. And so now students can use a course like the U-Cube course or the IDS course in place of Algebra 2. They can. And I should mention, you know, it's it's definitely worth mentioning that there are a lot. I think I think, you know, I don't have the numbers. My impression is that the majority of students who take these courses also do take Algebra 2. 
So even though it validates Algebra 2, it's not like everyone is taking them instead of Algebra 2. But students are allowed to take it instead of Algebra 2 if they want to and if their school you know, says that they can. And there are some students who do. But are students aware that if they take those courses instead of Algebra 2, that they may be shutting a lot of doors for themselves in terms of entering STEM careers later on? I don't know that everyone fully understands, you know, what the course is and isn't. You know, I mean, I'll give you an example. You know, my own brother-in-law, who, who you know, lives in my household, took AP Calculus BC, which is much more advanced than Algebra 2, okay? It's like Algebra 2, then Pre-Calc then AP Calculus. And even then there's AB, then there's BC. So he had completed AP Calculus BC in 11th grade. He was you know, going to take multivariable calculus in 12th grade. On day one of his senior year in multivariable calculus, you know, the teacher said, hey, you know, exciting new course we're offering at our high school now. We're offering this U-Cube data science course. And you know, he encouraged students to consider dropping multivariable calculus to take the U-Cube data science course. I'm not sure that teachers uniformly understand or realize that, you know, the course is very mathematically light. And, you know, I, I don't have a problem with someone taking it as an elective. Why not take the course? But if, if it's being pitched to schools and it's being pitched to students as a math replacement and, and as an advanced math replacement, as, or, you know, especially as a replacement algebra two, then I think that's, that's where I have a problem, especially, you know, given, you know, one of the courses Again, the creator himself says it contains just a dash of math. The creator himself is telling you it's not really a math class. Have honest advertising. Tell students what the class really is. And if they want to take it as an elective, I think that makes sense. But I think if students take this thinking it's going to prepare them for a data science major or it's on the path to you know lucrative STEM careers, then I think that's misleading. It's really misleading. And I agree with you. It seems perfectly fine to have a course like that as an elective, but students do need to know what they're getting into. And how would a student even know that, right? Like they don't know unless someone tells them. A lot of times their parents won't know either. So I think it's really important that people understand that if you do choose that path and you choose not to take Algebra 2, then you're going to have a lot of trouble getting caught up later. I don't know how difficult it is to get caught up there. Here we do have remedial courses at the university level that students can take to upgrade, but it's actually pretty hard to get caught up when you get to the university level. You can do it, but ideally you want to take the courses you need to prepare you for the STEM career later. You want to take those in high school. Here, if you don't, if you don't get the content of Algebra 2 and you end up at, the, at UC Berkeley, I don't really see where you would get that content in a course here. I think you would just be off-ramped from any kind of you know, quantitative major. And a student might decide when they get to university that they want to do a degree in computer science or math or statistics or economics or something like that, and they will need that math background. Yes, agreed. So what are your thoughts on that Area C change? Do you think it should be reversed? I think it would be great if we did have data science classes that covered essential math content. To me, that's just, that's just an Algebra 2 class, but using data science examples, right? And I think that's perfectly fine. 
But yes, I mean, I think the approval of some of these courses, like especially these two courses, the IDS and U-Cubed Explorations in Data Science, their approvals as advanced math, as validating Algebra 2, should most certainly, in my opinion, be revoked. Do you think there's any hope of that happening? You know, I, I think so. I mean, in talking to a lot of my colleagues across the UC, my opinion on this is definitely shared by a lot of other faculty. Is there a possibility of it happening? One thing to understand about the UC, faculty governance is very strong at the UC. I used to be at Harvard, right, on the faculty there. If you asked me who sets the guidelines for admissions, how, how do we score candidates for admission at Harvard? I have no idea who's behind that. I don't think the faculty own that ability. I think, you know, the administration has the ability to control that kind of stuff. I'm going to be a little bit technical for a second. You know, if you look at the state constitution of California, it grants governance authority over the UC to the Board of Regents. And then if you look at the Board of Regents bylaws and regulations and policies, it grants authority over admissions policy to the faculty, not to the president of the UC, not to the provost, not to the administration, but to the faculty. We, the faculty, control admissions requirements for the UC. And what does that mean? It means that at every UC campus, so there's you know UCLA, UC Berkeley, UC Davis, et cetera, every campus has its own local faculty admissions committee. And that committee deliberates admissions, you know, related issues for that campus. And, you know, you can imagine there are, there are many issues that are local to the campus. So Berkeley might have a new data science major. Well, we definitely have a new college of data science as of a few months ago. And now the question is, uh, what should we expect for admissions for the data science major, right? And that's a Berkeley issue. That's a Berkeley major. We'll, we'll talk about it at Berkeley. But then there are issues that are not just Berkeley issues, they're you know important across the entire UC system. Like what are the basic foundational math courses that any admit should have taken? That's a system-wide, statewide issue. So the way that works is you mentioned this committee, BORS. BORS is just a committee of representatives. So every local campus picks one of its committee members from its admissions committee to be the rep to BORS. So BORS is this committee of reps. And that committee deliberates admissions-related issues that are important across the whole UC. And if they want to make adjustments to the, to the faculty regulations for admissions, they can draft amendments, and that draft should then be circulated across the entire UC for comment from the entire faculty. That, that's called system-wide review. Then when they get the results back from system-wide review, they can adjust their amendment come up with a final polished version, send that polished amendment to something called the assembly, which is like our parliament. It has elected reps from the faculty from every campus, and the assembly will vote and vote to decide whether that amendment should be adopted or not. You know, that's the process, okay? So faculty control the process from top to bottom, which means if enough faculty say, no, we should, we should stop this, then it'll happen because the faculty are the ones who have the power to make it happen. So you can maybe get it reversed then? Is that what you're saying? I mean, not me as an individual, but I'm saying, you know, there are these local committees, right? One per campus. So if there's like a consensus at every campus that we want this reversed, and then that consensus trickles up to boards, right? Because again, every one of those committees has a rep that's on boards. 
And then Bohr, then, then Bohr's will be like, huh, well, we at Berkeley have been saying this. And then, the, you know, maybe the LA person will say, oh, we at UCLA have also been saying this, et cetera. And if enough campuses want it, then I think that's probably what Bohr's will recommend, right? Because again, you know, ultimately it's just us. It's the faculty who control this through this process. Didn't Bohr's already do that? Didn't they already send it out to faculty for consultation? Uh, no, actually. So this rollout of high school data science in 2021, there was never a system-wide review and there was never a vote by the assembly. They just rolled it out. As to whether or not there needed to be a system-wide review or needed to be an assembly vote, as long as the new policy is not consistent with academic Senate regulations, then there does need to be a system-wide review and a vote. So the question then is, is this new policy from 2021, is it actually consistent with Senate regulations? So if you recall, the new policy defines this concept called advanced mathematics, right? A course can be labeled with this label, advanced mathematics. And if it, if it acquires that label, you can use it to substitute for Algebra 2 or for Math 3 in the integrated sequence. You know, I think that that really is a deviation um, from Senate regulations. This idea of advanced mathematics is not written anywhere in Senate regulations. The only similar sounding thing is Regulation 428C, which says you can use a course that's more advanced than and assumes knowledge of a lower level course to substitute for it. And actually, when that was introduced, that regulation was introduced uh, in 2009, the only mention of using it was for um, language classes. So for example, someone already knows some Spanish 1, they want to skip Spanish 1 and take, just go straight to Spanish 2, then they can do that, right? Uh, but you know, clearly, if, you, if you're going into Spanish 2, you, you've already mastered everything in Spanish 1, which is different from here where you're saying now classes can just acquire this label. And I mean, just to, just to drive home the point that this label inherently is not consistent with state standards. The state standards have two pathways to be college ready in math in high school. One is the so-called traditional pathway, which is algebra one, geometry, algebra two. And the other is the integrated pathway, which is math one, math two, math three. Okay, so these are two different course sequences. And the idea is that these courses don't matter. They're not identical. It's not that math three is another name for algebra two. If I, if I were to give an analogy with like making, you know, say a, a, a thermos of coffee, let's say that there's the traditional way of making coffee, which is you add step one, add three cups of coffee. Step two, add three cups of milk. Step three, add three teaspoons of sugar. Whereas let's say the integrated way of making coffee is add one cup coffee, one cup milk, one teaspoon sugar. That's step one. Step two, do it again. Step three, do it again. So it's clear that at the end, you have the same final product. But in in the middle, as you're as you're going through this sequence, in either case, you're not you're you know you're not at identical intermediate states. So now, basically, what this new policy is saying is there's this concept called advanced math, which data science satisfies, and we'll just replace step three in either sequence with data science. But clearly, after having completed the first two steps in the sequence in integrated versus the first two steps in the sequence in the traditional method in the traditional sequence students are not at the same place, right? Because the state standards designed the entire sequence at a time. You know, it wasn't designed that you could just remove the third course and replace it with something else. You know, you wouldn't be in an equivalent state. There's another subtle thing, which is if you look at the first bullet, the first bullet just says you have to use concepts from, you know, algebra one, geometry, algebra two, or use concepts from math one, math two, math three. 
But this idea of use concepts, you know, suggests that partial coverage is okay. Maybe if I use what, 10% of the concepts, 20%, 50%, how much coverage or how much use is needed to satisfy bullet one. But if you look at the standards and if you look at Senate regulations, there's no partial, there's no idea of partial coverage. You have to cover the course content. So I think even bullet one is also not quite in alignment with, with Senate regulations as well as with the state standards. So I think this deviation means that there should have been a system-wide review. There should have been an assembly vote. These things simply didn't happen. You know, and I should, I should mention, you know, so why, why wasn't there this, you know, why wasn't there this uh, system-wide review and vote, assembly vote as there should have been? And, you know, just to quote Dr. Gould again, the IDS creator, this is a quote now, he says, I should caution though, that when our ad hoc committee met, this is the ad hoc committee that drafted this policy, there was some confusion as to whether Boers could revise the policy or whether it would require subsequent approval from the statewide academic Senate. I believe that the plan is to move ahead as if Boers has the right and see if it is challenged. Since the attempts at researching this were ambiguous, uh, and he goes on to say that that's his understanding only and he's going to seek clarification from someone he feels understood more. You read this and you wonder, like, it seems like he, he had this he knew that there was some gray area here and it's like, let's just march forward and see if we can get away with this, right? Which kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Then again, he did say that he wanted to seek clarification. So who knows, who knows what he was told by the person that he spoke with. And I mean, it's had an impact in the high schools already. That's right. Now these data science courses are being promoted in the high schools, and it sounds like sometimes they're being promoted in place of Algebra 2, and that often students maybe don't understand what they're getting into. And math, of course, is really cumulative, which is another thing that a lot of times people don't understand. If you don't get that math in high school that you need to take a course in university, you've got a lot of catching up to do. So it's really important that students, they understand that. I did want to ask another question because I've read a lot of claims that the CMF is equity-based. Uh -huh. And some of the proponents for these data science courses, they use the argument that Algebra 2 has high failure rates for Black and Latino students and that data science courses like IDS will help to address that problem. What are your thoughts on that claim? Let me actually pull up on my screen an article that was written by Gould okay, about his own course. Again, through the creator of the course, IDS, Introduction to Data Science. So he had this article that uh, he submitted for publication in October 2020. That's actually right around the time that Bohr's voted to, to approve this new policy that Gould had co-authored. And in that course, that's the same article where he, he says his course, quote, contains just a dash of mathematical thinking. So let me read a quote from this article. The existence of alternative pathways is important because Algebra 2 has a high failure rate, which has fueled an industry in remedial mathematics education. And the failure rate is disproportionately high for African-American and Latinx students. Many educators are justifiably concerned that the calculus pathway institutionalizes racial inequities by decreasing the number of Black and Latino students in college. Data science courses, as well as statistics courses, have an important role to play, and, and he goes on. So if I just back up and synthesize what I've read, so he's saying that his course contains just a dash of math, and he's saying that a course that is 
more mathematically rigorous like Algebra 2, has high failure rates for Black and Latino students, but there's a solution. Just put them in my class, which only contains just a dash of math, it seems, so that they'll pass, okay? And he even says, and, and this really upset me, actually, there's another quote there that says, IDS is not intended, this is in his words, IDS is not intended as a curriculum for elite schools or elite students. Okay? It was developed, uh, et cetera, to enhance education in a school district, which is 80% of the students are below the poverty level and 20% are English language learners. You know, it, it really bothers me. It's like this assumption that Black and Latino students, I'm Black, of course, that we you know, our communities, you know, there's no way to uplift us to get us to pass real math courses. The solution to higher failure rates in my community is to put black students in courses that contain just the dash of math, call it math, call it advanced math, and then they pass that. And I, I find that extremely troubling and honestly somewhat racist. And, you know, I, I look at other people who are trying to make dents in this space like you know, black educators, a guy named Adrian Mims, for example, who's based in Boston, founded a nonprofit called the Calculus Project. His whole uh, nonprofit is about getting more black and Latino students ready for calculus, okay, in high school. You know, don't give up on us. Provide the support that students need to succeed. Don't just replace the real math courses with fake math courses and then call it a success. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I would bet that a lot of this goes back to K to six, not being taught well. In math education, there's a lot of fads. It's just like, you know, Emily Hanford's podcast where she talks about the things that happened with reading. The same things are happening with math. And so the thing maybe to, to look at is actually teaching the math well in K to yeah. six and getting everybody, trying to get everybody onto the Algebra 2 path, right? Instead of providing this off-ramp. Let me piggyback on something you just said about earlier grades. You know, I mentioned Adrian Mims and the Calculus Project. You know, another Black educator who actually used to be the former chair of NSBE. NSBE is the National Society of Black Engineers. Her name is Virginia Womack. She was the national chair a while ago, the first female national chair, actually, I think in the 70s. She's now at the Purdue College of Engineering in Indiana, and she started a program called AB7G, that's Algebra by 7th Grade. You know, her program starts working with kids as early as 2nd grade to get them ready for Algebra by 8th, to take Algebra in 8th grade. So they work with kids from, I think, 2nd to 7th grade to get them math ready. So yes, I mean, I would very much more like to see programs like that which are providing the extra support kids need extracurricularly or working with school districts and not basically taking the, che the cheap way out and saying, we're just going to replace real math courses with math light courses and call, you know, call it a victory. Absolutely. And I can link to some of the things that you just mentioned too, because I always put a resource page. I'll also give you links to the actual curricula for the U-Cubed course and for the IDS course, you can go online and actually view the material yourselves. Even just go to the U-Cubed course and just click Unit 1 Slideshow. It's an eight-unit course taught over, the, over a year. So Unit 1 out of eight is, you know, you figure like an academic year divided by eight. That's like a month's worth of course material. I think it's obvious to anyone. You told me you looked through it. It's obvious to anyone just flipping through the slides that there is very, very little math in this course. 
it's very obvious. In fact, the first thing I thought is, oh, this is a this is a safety valve. It's a place for kids to go when they got behind and they can't move into algebra because of it. But that's not how it's being marketed, right? It's not being marketed as a remedial math course. It's being marketed as data science is the future. You know, take courses like these data science courses and you'll be ready for data science majors at the UC, which are very, which are STEM majors. So I think, I think there is just like a false marketing kind of going on for these courses. They're not being marketed as, as safety courses, as you've said. And again, it's not that you have a problem with students taking a course like that. It's just don't market it as a course that's going to prepare students for STEM because it won't. And don't approve it as an advanced math course. Have it as an elective. That makes perfect sense, but it's not advanced mathematics. Just in regards to those two main data science courses you talked about, so there's the UQ'd one and the IDS. So are people making profits here? I'm just trying to trying to wrap my head on around everything that's going on. I can tell you what I know. Both of those courses are released free to the public. You can go to a website now and look at all the course materials for the UQ'd course for free. You can do the same thing for IDS. Where there is money involved is in PD, professional development. You're a school district, you wanna roll out one of these courses, but you want your teachers to get training on how to teach to the curriculum. Each of them does offer professional development opportunities. So for example, with IDS, I think a school district can pay something on the order of $10,000 for 13 days of training for their teacher. The 13 days of training are not consecutive. It's over a two-year span. And the U-Cubed course also has professional development courses as well. So there's revenue there. I don't know. It's not publicly stated you know, how that money flows. I would imagine it doesn't flow directly to the two course creators. The IDS course is actually housed inside the UCLA Department of Statistics. The U-Cubed course is housed inside U-Cubed, which is a unit of Stanford. It's part of Stanford. So, you know, the money flows through Stanford in some way, I guess, right? Because U-Cubed is part of Stanford. As far as, far as the individuals profiting, it's not clear. I mean, I, I have no idea. I don't have any insight into that. I mean, what we do know is that they both do engage in consulting. You know, if you go to Rob Gould's website, he says that he enjoys consulting, especially if it's education-related. But I, would, I couldn't tell you what are examples of consulting that he's done. And then, of course, Bowler, Bowler, there was a famous, <laughs> there was some famous consulting that actually, you know, upset me personally. Going back to the CMF, you, you mentioned the CMF was saying that it was pro-equity, especially, you know, if you look at the introductory chapter to draft one of the CMF that came out in 2021, it, it, you know, it went on and on about Black and Latino students and equity and closing achievement gaps, et cetera. And then it came out that Professor Bowler, who was one of the authors of the CMF, had a consulting contract with a minority-serving school district in Southern California, the Oxnard School District, more than 90% minority student population, I think mostly Latino, more than 80% low income, measured by uh, the student qualifying for free or reduced lunch. She was charging them for consulting $5,000 an hour for virtual meetings, I guess, Zoom meetings with their teachers. That really troubled me. You know, as you mentioned, I founded Odd Decoder, I founded Jam Coders, the David Harold Blackwell Summer Research Institute. 
I give my time to those things. Sometimes I even spend my own money to, on those things. I don't make a dime off of any of that stuff. And I, I just couldn't imagine charging money for that. But to charge, not only charge money, but to charge $5,000 an hour, that's a, that's a crazy amount of money. And it just seemed predatory to me. And you know, the, the money that was being used to pay that fee was being paid by the school district. And they got the money from a California Department of Education grant that was earmarked for low-performing students. So they took that money, that public money, and paid $5,000 an hour to Bowler. So to say that you're pro-equity and then take that kind of money from minority-serving school districts, I think, really bothered me. As you, might, as you might have seen, that she was quite upset with me. You know, By the way, I should mention, I've actually never, I think many people don't know, I've never actually met Bowler. Never, I've never emailed her in my life. I've never talked to her. The closest I've ever come was before this $5,000 an hour thing came out, there was a webinar about the CMF. And me being interested in the CMF, I attended the webinar. And she was one of the speakers. Anyone in the audience could like anonymously ask questions that would go to the panel. So I remember asking a question. And then I, think, and then I got an answer. My, I think the answer, my answer was actually typed by Bowler herself. I don't think she even realizes that she was typing it back to me. But yeah, that's the closest I've come to actually ever talking to or meeting Professor Bowler. One teacher called out this $5,000 an hour thing on Twitter. I retweeted it and added my kind of criticism as a quote tweet. And I woke up the next morning to an email from Bowler, the first and last email I've ever gotten from her, basically you know, accusing me of harassment and spreading misinformation and and saying, implying that she had called the police, you know, the, the exact phrasing was something like the sharing of my private information is now being taken up by police and lawyers. You know, I can't believe that you're participating in harassing me and spreading misinformation. And, you know, I read that and I thought now being taken up by police and lawyers, it's not that I will call a lawyer. It's not that I will call the police. It is now being taken up which suggests that they've already been called. And so when I, and then to the next sentence talking about, you know, accusing me of harassment. Harassment is an actual crime. It's not a joke. And you know, spreading misinformation is defamation. She sent that email to me around the same time as the uh, the defamation trial between Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. Do you remember that? That that yeah, was in the, pop, the popular media. So when she said spreading misinformation, that was like the first thing that came to my mind. I was like, wait, you mean like the defamation case between Amber Heard and Johnny Depp? Is she going to sue me now? So I took that email very seriously. And again, I never responded to it in an email to her, but I just sat on it. I sat on it for, I think, four days. I talked to a private attorney. I talked to um, our general counsel at UC Berkeley, actually. And the two attorneys I talked to said, no, Jelani, you didn't do anything wrong. I mean, that that contract, so the thing that was actually tweeted out was the contract she had with the school district. Mm -hmm. And that contract is public. It's public. I mean, it's on their website. You can go find it right now. So for me to tweet out a screenshot of a public like, retweet, a screenshot of a public document is not, there's no misinformation. I mean, that's what the contract says. So they said you didn't do anything wrong. I ended up just deciding to defend myself publicly. And I took a screenshot of her email and pointed out that she called the cops on me for this. That got a lot of attention. It was a little bit stressful at the time, but you know, honestly, it brought a lot of attention to the math framework. It brought more eyes to it. 
then a lot of faculty across California are like, wait, what is, what, is, what is going on here? They actually started reading more about the framework, understanding what was in these data science classes. And then we had more open letters. There was an open letter signed by almost 450 California faculty pushing back against these data science courses. I guess, you know, gla glass half full, even though it was a little stressful for me, there was a, a you know, silver lining. Also, I mean, since I brought it up, one thing that I do want to mention is I think there's there's a lot of confusion also about that whole cop calling episode, which I, I run into even today. I get questions like, but Jelani, you know, was it necessary to put her home address on Twitter? And that actually never happened. I never put her address on Twitter. My tweet is still there. There's no address on it. Okay. What actually happened is that there were many tweets related to her contracts, and one of them apparently said it was a different page of, on her contract, like a different page on the school district meeting minutes that had an address to mail the check the, you know, for the consulting. And that address turned out it was her home address. I don't think anyone even realized that it. it was a Stanford, California address. Probably anyone looking at it would just assume it's her office on campus. Turns out that was her home address, okay? But it's not even me who tweeted it. That was tweeted by someone else, and they took it down. Either they took it down or Twitter took it down. The person even apologized. And then my tweet, my retweet came something like six hours later. So by the time that I saw all of this in my timeline and retweeted one of the tweets, that address tweet didn't even exist anymore for me to even see, let alone retweet. No, I never, I never retweeted Professor Bowler's address, and I never would do such a thing. And I of think the person, not. who the person who tweeted all the contracts at the beginning probably didn't even realize herself that you know one of the one of the things on it was a home address. Well, I'm sorry that happened to you, but honestly, when people are charging five thousand dollars an hour to any school district, really, I think it's okay to let people know about that. I think a lot of times people don't know this stuff is going on. Some people have asked me, Jelani, you know, do you have an axe to grind with, with Joe Bowler? I mean, you know, is that, is that what motivates you to fight against the CMF? My open letter that I co-authored that criticized the CMF was out there from either late November or early December 2021, right? So I've been, I've been noticing this and fighting against it since late 2021. And I, that whole cop calling thing didn't even happen until April 2022. I think, you know, the timeline is reversed. I am not opposing the CMF because Joe Bowler threatened me with police. If, if anything, it's the other way around, okay? She noticed that I was one of the people opposing the CMF and then later threatened me with police. Of course. And I mean, you're, you're obviously a very kind person and, and you do a lot of equity work and you care about that and you care about your field, right? You care about students being able to enter your field. That's what this is about. It has nothing to do with Joe Bowler. I mean, right. she's part of it. So at the end of the day, you end up opposing some of the things she says. But we have to do that, right? If we're, if we're going to advocate for something, we do have to be able to have debates and not have people call the cops on us. Or, or, or make it seem like they did. And again, I'll also say, you know, if you open the math framework, even version three, but version one, which was the one that was out back then when I first got involved, 
the authors of it are actually not listed anywhere in the document. You have to you have to Google around really hard to actually find out who the CMF authors were. So I I actually remember, you know, maybe I had heard the name Joe Bowler and maybe I had heard some of the author names back at the end of 2021. I can't even remember, but it certainly didn't stick. And, you know, at no point when I was writing that open letter in 2021 did I even think, you know, about who the authors of the framework were. I just read the framework as it was. The, the criticisms were were directed at the contents of the framework, not at any individual. It was not anything personal against anyone. So do you have any other re- issues related to the data science situation? Again, you know, if anyone's listening to this podcast, I would just encourage you, go to the websites yourself and just look through the curriculum yourself. I would say, in my opinion, I think neither of them has much rigorous math in it. I would say... The IDS course probably has a little more, but you know, go through them, especially go through the U-cubed course, just go through the unit slides. You'll see exactly what, <laughs> what I'm talking about, okay? So where are we at now in terms of where the CMF is with respect to the data science? Right, so I mean, again, I'm still reading through version three. Public comment is due next week, Friday at noon. There's still a chapter on data science. There is some... You know, it talks about the difference between data literacy and data science. And there's also a, a chapter on high school math, which was there before, because the CMF is not just about high school. It's, it's all the way from kindergarten through high school, right? I've mostly been focused on the high school stuff. But if you look at the high school chapter, it still does cite the UC encouraging data science classes. So, you know, one thing I, one thing I personally worry about is there are a lot of faculty who are now at the UC saying, Hey, maybe there, maybe there is something you know we should be revoking here. Again, it's up to the faculty to do that, not to the administration. So if, if the faculty end up revoking, you know, these most popular data science courses, but then the CMF gets adopted in the July twelfth vote, that's still pointing to the UC encouraging data science courses. Then all of a sudden, the state guidelines to teachers have immediate, almost immediately fallen out of sync with admissions requirements to our public universities. That's something that I think is significant, and I think people don't realize that this is a this is a real risk. Well, we'll wait and see how that goes with the vote, and uh, hopefully they'll take these things into consideration. So thank you for this conversation about data science. I think these are really important conversations to have. It's happening in California now, but everything that happens there usually ends up happening in other places, including yes. in Canada and in the rest of the U.S. So we're going to keep a close eye on that. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Chalk and Talk. Please go ahead and follow on your favorite podcast app so you can get new episodes delivered as they become available. You can follow me on Twitter for notifications or check out my website, anastocky.com, for more information. This podcast received funding through a University of Winnipeg Knowledge Mobilization and Community Impact Grant funded through the Anthony Swaty Knowledge Impact Fund.